Inbred Quarterly Slush Pile Podcast. We have a very special episode uh, today. We're going to have one of our special conversations with a special person. And that special person today is M. Rachel Branwin. She is the founding editor of Slush Pile Literary Magazine. Um, we were excited to meet her and find out about its existence when we were at AWP in LA um, this year in 2016. Um, but I'd like to do a round of introductions first and then we'll tell you that story. So I'm Kathleen Volkmiller. I'm co-editor of the Painted Bread Quarterly and director of the graduate program in publishing here at Drexel University. Uh, I'm speaking to you from inside the sound studio here in Philadelphia. Um, on my left is Sarah Akid, our brand new co-op, who I have to tell you was thrown into the fire on day one. I think she's what Marion and I like to call a lifer. <laughs> because the way we prove who a lifer is, it's those who are asked to lift boxes on day one. She was toting boxes. I'm texting her from at, while she's at lunch telling her to go to a mail room, which is like in, in Bumble, you know, um, on campus and pick up packages that she had no idea she was supposed to do. And then she was thrown right into something called the Dragon Expo, which was this um, open house for graduate students. And literally three people deep were dying to talk to her. And she handled it. She was really, really terrific. So, Sarah Akit. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Sarah. So, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. My name is Tim Fitz, and I teach freshman writing here at Drexel, and I've been reading with the Painted Bride Quarterly for about three years. I think this is my fourth year. And I write short stories and novels. Fabulous. Marion. Hi, this is Marion Wren, and I'm calling in from um, scenic Abu Dhabi, where it's about 7.15 at night, and I have poured myself the first of many experiments, um, cocktail experiments, that I'm testing out for AWP in DC. So tonight, I have what I'm calling the Sadiat Swizzle, which is lemonade and vodka. <laughs> In preparation for our slush pile. So I give you that. Is that legal in Abu Dhabi? <laughs> no. I am breaking every little bit of Sharia law. <laughs> Although maybe I shouldn't say that on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have my liquor license, so this is legal. Oh, okay. You got your own, finally. <laughs> okay, how about a very special guest? M. Rachel Brownwin. <clears throat> Yes, that's me. So I'm M. Rachel Branwin. As Kathleen said, I'm the editor and publisher of Slush Pile Magazine. I'm also the longtime senior reader of fiction at Harvard Review, um, where I'm also formerly the managing editor. And I am joining you today from inside of my closet in Los Angeles. Wow. What, are you often in the closet, Rachel? Um, only when I'm required to find a a quiet space where I won't be interrupted. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Are you? I have to ask Rachel. Can you just give us a little bit more information about this closet? Is it like a walk-in closet, or are you cranked in there with? Like, okay. A slide yeah. Yeah. Um, I. 
It is a walk-in closet. Um, directly behind me is a pile of clean laundry. Uh, my pug is asleep behind me on the cushion that I'm sitting on. And um, there's also a window in my closet, which is kind of cheerful. Um, and so I have, you know, a cup of coffee and some lemon water and some half-eaten toast. And um, yeah, I'm pretty cozy, actually. Is R. Kelly in there? <laughs> I'll tell you what. Your your closet sounds nicer than my office. Seriously, <laughs> I don't even have a window. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Well, let let me just tell this little bit of narrative. Um, we were at AWP this past year, and we were promoting the slush, this very slush pile podcast for the first time. And we had this very simple black and white sticker. Um, that, by the way, if you send us a self-addressed envelope, I'll be happy to send you one. Um, we we had these all over our table, and different people, both um, strangers and friends, were coming by and saying, "Oh, are you part of the Slush Pile magazine?" And we were um, intrigued, we were angered, we were surprised. We were like, "Slush Pile magazine? What is this?" And it kept happening over and over and over again, and we found decided to go off and investigate and um, we found Rachel manning this beautifully designed um, booth and um, having a magazine called Slush Pile. And so uh, we immediately stole her coffee mugs and grabbed her tote bags (laughs) and made her come over to our booth and drink cheap wine out of a box and tell us all about how this came to be. So I'm now going to ask you to recreate that entire moment, Rachel, and tell us how, explain to our listeners um, why the whys and hows of your magazine. Oh, the whys and hows. Okay. Um, Well, so as I said, I've been a reader at Harvard Review for many years, and um, the way Slush Pile came about was that um, uh, there were so many stories that I loved that we didn't have uh, a place for at Harvard Review. And so I started keeping track of all of the the authors that that I most liked whose stories we had rejected. And eventually I determined um, to start my own magazine. So I wrote to all of these people and said, uh, you know, I'm a a reader at Harvard Review. I read your story. I really loved it. I wanted to see if maybe you'd be willing to send me something for my magazine. And to my great surprise, they did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was the beginning of Slush Pile, and we've kind of been going on that way ever since, which is also why it's called Slush Pile. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about that motivation alone. Um, Of course, you know, the Slush Pile itself is something that people talk about. And um, by the time people hear this podcast, they'll be able to um, reach back in our archives just a tiny bit and hear a podcast that we did with Jim Hannes of HarperCollins Audience Development, who um, posits a theory that we should no longer have slush piles at all and that Mm -hmm. editors should serve as scouts and just find work. So you were doing the polar opposite of that, right? You're kind of yeah, celebrating the slush pile? Yeah, I mean, that's completely pile? ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you'll have to listen to that podcast, too. 
But but yes. I, what I'm intrigued by is the um, how opposite your uh, motivations are, and and the you know the inception the the idea of your magazine at all seems to be a celebration of that very thing of the exactly. Um, it's funny that I've just dismissed his uh, his podcast out of hand. But, <laughs> I mean, it's fine that he feels that way. But where are you going to go looking for people? I mean, in, in anybody's um, world of writers or associations, you know, it's limited. There's only the people that you know. And slush piles are a wonderful opportunity to see what else is going on in the world. And, um, you know, we get submissions from everywhere. And the insight into people's um, lives and minds and imaginations is just so staggering. And you find things that you love so unexpectedly. And if, if you were deprived of that resource, I just don't know where you would keep finding new good things. And especially things that, you know, require a little bit more work, a little bit more finessing, um, the sort of work and finessing that maybe bigger journals don't have time for um, with all of the submissions that they receive. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Slush piles are my absolute favorite thing. And I knew as soon as I started <laughs> reading for Harvard Review that it was what I wanted to keep doing, you know, for my entire life. Wow. A lifer. A lifer. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a lifer. Oh, that's great. So, <laughs> so how how long? A bit more. I, I'm sorry to jump in this for a second, but I'm Go. really curious about that that moment when you're like, yeah, actually, I'm reading at Harvard Review, and this is amazing, and, and I, I I love being in the literary world, but I'm watching these pieces get rejected that I'm still thinking about, right? That are, are lodged in my imagination in a way that I can't really let go of. How did you? What was the next like? Like, I know the next step was then to reach out to these people, but can you tell us maybe some stories, like early stories about that yeah, moment? I can, of, like, of course, I can, I, can tell you, um, the, I can tell you the name of the first story that really grabbed me, the first story that I didn't want to let go of. Um, mm. It was called, I Don't Care If a Broken Heart is the Thing of the Devil Because I Got One by Sadie <laughs> Ho Hoagland. Um, I, and when I picked it up to read it, I thought, this is a bold title. And this story is either going to be really bad or uh -huh. really, really good. Uh -huh. And um, and it was really, really good. And I fought for that story. I actually fought for that story over a course of five years because... Um, mm. Nathan Lay was the fiction editor at the time. He was the one who kind of, uh, he was unsure about it on the first round. Christina Thompson was on board with it. And then uh, Sadie and I kept in touch. Um, well, I've kind of just fast forwarded. So the, the immediate answer to your question is the first thing that I did without knowing what I was going to do is I just started making a note of these people, just simply putting them in a list. I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I just knew that I didn't mm -hmm. want to lose track of them and that I wanted to, you know, keep reading their stories and keep a lookout for them and, and watch them. Um, but that didn't feel quite active enough. So anyway, back to Sadie. Um, I don't think I reached out to her immediately, although I may have. Um, but uh, once I did have Slush Pile established, I, I published her twice. Um, the the last story that I published is actually just in um, the issue that's up now, uh, and um, but I, I didn't ever publish that story because I felt like that story was really destined for a, a bigger home. I really wanted that story to place in um, mm. you know a top tier literary journal like one of the big guys, and I thought it should be in print. And so uh, Namle eventually moved on from Harvard Review, and now we have uh, Suzanne Burney. 
And uh, so I brought it back to Christina. You know, I, I wrote to Sadie and said, hey, did you ever end up finding a home for, uh, for that story? And she hadn't. So I brought it back up um, to Christina and Suzanne. But again, we just couldn't reach a consensus. Um, it was more to my taste wow. than to Suzanne's taste. But um, it's still an amazing story. And it's that kind of story that, you know, um, I don't know, prompts you to take some other action. Well, wow. okay. So that, that what a great illustration of something that we've been talking about in, a, in a, one way or the other with Jason Schneiderman, who's also on our editorial board for like the last, you know, six or seven months. And that is the distinction between thinking of the editorial process as gatekeeping and thinking of the editorial process as a form of curation. Exactly. Yeah. When you're, as you speak, it's like, absolutely. Like you've, you've figured out a way of seeing your role as a curatorial role and you're, you're gathering, even as, as simple as keeping the list of names, right? Like these are I the mean, pieces that are know, worth I view it as being even more than curatorial. I would argue that in fact, it's a position that requires championing, you know, yeah, in, in yeah. this yeah. age when uh, literary markets are so tough and writers are making so little money, I think our job is to figure out how to progress their careers. You know, that's what I think. That's great. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, Rachel, do you now get straight up submissions? Because the irony here, Slush Pile started as scouting, didn't it? You know, you mm -hmm. scouted through the Slush Pile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. And yeah, I, yeah, we, we do. We get um, actually a lot of our own submissions, sometimes more than I can keep up with. However, I do still read for Harvard Review, and of course, they still get thousands and thousands of submissions. So now I have the benefit of both. And, um, you know, this, this recent issue that I'm putting together actually came together um, a couple months sooner than I had intended for it to come together. I mean, I just had more, <laughs> I had more things than I could kind of reasonably fit into um, one issue. So yeah, it's fun. There's, there's a lot coming through the pipeline. Do you yeah. ever get submissions from other magazines who find themselves in the same position you were in where they, half of the editorial board is on the fence and they contact you about a story that they think is really good, but they can't? get past the wall. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Yes, that has happened. And I, I find that I uh, do that as well. Um, I have the, the Missouri Review published a story of mine recently, and um, I, I periodically will send things across to them just to, to run by, um, you know, if I feel like a story um, deserves a bigger venue than what I can give it, you know. There's a poem we should have sent you about two years ago. Oh, don't start <laughs> that again. Well, now um, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and the other thing that I do at Slush File that I, I think um, few literary magazines have the, the time or resources to do is that I really make it a point to give feedback. I mean, I will absolutely definitely give feedback whenever it's requested in a cover letter um, even if it's just a couple of lines but uh, if I feel like a story um, I feel like if there's something important some important piece of feedback that I can give someone about a story I'll do it you know and I think that that's the uh, the other contribution we try to make on a regular basis so, and you're not charging extra for that, are you? Are you charging? Do you charge for? 
Uh, it's yeah. another issue that's bubbled up um, sometimes even after we discuss poetry, certain issues that are pressing on our minds that um, get discussed in our podcast. And one of them has been the very complicated issue of payment for submission and mm-hmm. and the layers that people are now adding on to that, like X amount of dollars gets you a critique and X amount of dollars gets you, you know, a faster yeah. response. There's so many um, variations now. Ooh, a faster response. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I do think people will pay for that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, no, there's a $3 submission fee and that is how I justify it. Um, without getting into, you know, the um, finances of Slush Pile Magazine, $3 for a submission. I mean, of course, we only see half of that because the real cost of the submission is about keeping the submission manager, uh, the submissions manager up and running. But um, that is how I feel like we justify it. So you're paying us $3. It's really paying for the submissions manager, but we will give you feedback if you ask for it. Um, I... I've been toying with the idea of offering some kind of higher level editorial services on on the Slushpile website, um, mm-hmm. but I haven't done it yet. And, um, and and one of my ideas was to do some kind of um, higher level but lower cost uh, editorial services, but that's all kind of in the future. You know? Sure, sure. Really, people can get that from from writing workshops, but um, I don't I don't know. Well, I think so many magazines wouldn't be doing it unless people were, A, willing to pay, mm-hmm. B, hungry for another response. I mean, even the work we're doing here on the podcast, uh, the authors that we've discussed on air write us and thank us and tell us how it felt like a, a workshop experience, even though they mm-hmm. couldn't participate in it, to hear their work um, you know, discussed at the level that we do it. But um, yeah, it's all very complicated and interesting. I think three dollars three dollars is what we charge, and that is you know keeping the lights on, as you said, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. How about the name Slush Pile? Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get negative feedback? What's? Uh, you know, I guess I, I guess it has come up before, but given the origin <sighs> story, it just makes so much sense. I mean, the fact that Slush Pile has a negative connotation to me is is um, well. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we we took on the name. Mm-hmm. We're owning it. We're repurposing it. We're you know, for us, it's <laughs> this amazing this amazing source of inspiration and um, great writing. So I don't really care what other people think about such. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm so glad Kathy asked that question because. Um, part of our motive for this podcast and calling our podcast The Slush Pile is to sort of lay bare the process of discussing and deciding on uh, submissions to the magazine, Mm -hmm. right? So it's a pretty, the conventional podcast for us is a a reading of a a manuscript and then the decision-making process, and that's the drama of one of our podcasts, Um, which raises a whole bunch of issues and a whole bunch of high stakes for the authors who participate, right? And generally they're describing it as both like fascinating and terrifying mm-hmm. um, as a, you know, a, a request to have their stuff discussed on the podcast. But on the whole, most people have um, agreed to do it. Um, and they've, one or two of them have called out that the title of the podcast is perhaps misleading. 
that it, as if we were talking about like less than top quality work. So our, you know what I mean? Like for, for us, it was like, you know, PBQ is pretty unique, I think, in our democratic or editorial process that like all of the readers are reading from the slush pile, right? So it's not like we have a band of first readers who then feed it up to the senior editors, right? right, right. Everybody reads from the slush pile and our votes are, are all equal. So there's a real democratic aesthetic conversation going on here. And that's, I think, part of the liveliness of it is to have people from around the world saying, actually, this is cool. And I like the way this sounds. Oh, no, this this plot device doesn't work. Or this poem is actually, you know, um, flattening or getting scrambled in this particular way. So it's just like a, a rolling conversation about taste, frankly. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But people do feel like, you know, the title of the podcast is somehow diminishing. Mm -hmm. Or they misinterpret what it what it is, you know, that yeah. we're re yeah. reading the, the second round um, stuff or something. I know that we're we're kind of talking about my project, but can I ask a question about about your um, readers and that whole process? Of course, sure. <laughs> um, well, I'm just curious. Uh, it is a really interesting and democratic process, but um, how do you um, account for the greenness of the new readers when they're coming into the fold, or is that just not a concern? Let me take that, Mara, for a minute. I mean, you can sure. jump in, too, because yeah, you're doing the same thing. Sure. Well, uh, we just have a big enough crew, Rachel. We have um, mm. at, at any any given editorial meeting in Philadelphia, there can be a minimum of maybe seven people. There's usually mm -hmm. around nine or ten. Mm -hmm. And maybe four of those are noobs. Okay. I think and and then we have the you know so we have the like uh, you know Tim has read with us for four years and Paul has read with us for seven years and Brian's mm -hmm. been with us eleven years and so um, the students who work with us the noobs who work with us get the, their vote their thumb up or down has the same power mm -hmm. um, but they're in a conversation with people who have read more. <laughs> I think they also they also take some maybe more chances you know they you get stuff on each side of the spectrum stuff that never should have gotten to the table and then they learn quick to maybe yeah. read a little more critically right right but then you also I get see. stuff that maybe somebody else wouldn't have said yes to and yes. you get a discussion going we absolutely and, have gotten stuff that a student was the one who found that happens and all the time it certainly keeps mm -hmm. the meetings from getting too stuffy yeah, you know, I know. I mean, everyone's oh, sort of on the same like level. So much fun. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would. I would love to spend an afternoon in a room full of people discussing submissions. I can't, I can't imagine. Come to Philly. Come to Philly, sister. I'm telling you, <laughs> right? Like the big secret, like joy of this is that it's you get to spend like an hour or two every other week talking about these poems or short stories, like they're the only thing that matters, right? And, and for a yeah, little while, can I that, crash one? That, 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 <laughs> yeah, open open <laughs> invitation. Uh, you find yourself in Philadelphia on a second Monday or a fourth Thursday, and just let us know. Hit us up. Great. Yeah. Okay. It, it's really fun though when you when when two people on submittable have said no, and then you say yes to it, and you bring it in and can sway the group. That's really mm. that's really something. Yeah. That is yeah. a blast to do. Yeah. You can think about it for a few days. I mean. This is this is how I obviously have a really small group of readers at 
slush pile. But at Harvard Review, um, it's essentially the same process. Well, or at least it's a similar process, but, but it, we're all remote. So we're mm. never in the, in the same room just discussing everything together. We kind of um, are leaving our notes, you know, on top of notes and figuring it out that way. But man, so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I have to say, like, uh, the placidness of it, right? Like, it, this is really a Philadelphia, South Jersey, like rooted in, in that neck of the woods, like for God knows, like, you know, 15 years of the magazine's life, um, those meetings were happening in Kathy's kitchen, in her living room, in bars in Philadelphia, and then eventually over at Drexel, right? But it was, you know, really about like, like gathering people around a coffee table or gathering people around, a, you know, a, a plate of homemade hummus at Kathy's house, right? <laughs> And talking about poems, so there really was mm-hmm. like a, like a, a kind of like, I don't know, like a a, a dailiness and an urgency, because it was like you know a, a bunch of people who were like saving a magazine and keeping it afloat and and doing it because they really believed in the project and and at that time back in like the the 90s, um, you know it was a it was a risk, right? It certainly wasn't something anybody was getting paid for, right? So it was on top of everything else that we were doing. Um, and it was, you know, thank God we saved it. Thank God we kept doing it. I'm sorry. I feel like I have to interject like the history really quickly. So the magazine has been around since 1973 and, and was terribly grassroots. It was a band of, you know, of artists who took over an abandoned bridal shop on South Street. Right, and they um, made an art center that's still in existence in Old City, and this magazine, and it stayed that grassroots for a really long time. My first meeting, the magazine was already pushing twenty mm-hmm. uh, years old, and I was I was invited into uh, a man's living room in Queens Village and handed a glass of wine and and given this power and pleasure of um, of reading this work. And, and that very moment it, uh, is what I think the philosophy that we've tried to continue with the magazine. Mm-hmm. And now it's 20 some years later and we have a staff in Philadelphia, we have a staff in New York, and we have a staff in Abu Dhabi. And every one of them is run, run with the same sort of um, open armed culture. Yeah. And and you know what mm, what I would hope great. will will continue when we pass it on, which I don't even want to talk about. That has been happening for a really long time. A technical glitch. Is this thing on? Hello. So so anyway, yeah, that's our story, and we're sticking to it. Yeah, it's yep. great. It's great. Yep. Well, you know what? I I have to. Sarah, are you there? Are you yeah, there? I'm still here. <laughs> I, listen, I, I want to hear from you. Like, how how is it being a new reader for PBK? I mean, I know you just started and we're lugging boxes last week, but can you can you chime in on this at all? Do you have anything you want to say? So when it comes to our student readers, we have two different tiers in a way. Um, mm-hmm. We have a writing class uh, in which Kathy is the professor, um, and that's when you really start reading. And... As part of Drexel's education, we have six-month internships in our, you know, um, the fields that we'd like to go into, um, 
and I was lucky enough, <laughs> I guess in a way, um, to be the editorial assistant uh, for my second internship for Painted Brad Quarterly. So back in the spring, I took the writing class, and that's when I started reading for uh, PBQ. Um, I think it's really empowering for students. Uh, we have, you know, not I'm an English major, but some of the students that take the writing class and read for Painted Bride are biology majors or engineering majors, nursing majors. Um, it's a really eclectic group. A lot of them take it because they don't really get an outlet to read um, and write in their daily curriculum. Um, and so I think to give them the chance to voice their opinion over, um, you know, the submissions and things like that is is really empowering and important. Um, because maybe this is a bold statement, but <laughs> uh, we students are, you know, who will be taking on, you know, literary magazines in the future. And I think that if not given the chance, we won't know what to do. And therefore, mm. you know, will these literary magazines exist? So, um, yeah. yeah, which is a bold statement, but. <laughs> no, I am so glad you're in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to it, right? So Thank you. I, love, I love that description of PBQ actually functioning as a, uh, a sort of crux or a linchpin for the divisions, for mm-hmm. the for the disciplines, right? Mm-hmm. So kids who are focused in on a particular career, a particular discipline or a field that's not in arts and humanities or, or not in creative writing, still getting out the opportunity to read creative writing as they should, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's- also to be given the chance to make decisions about the quality of, of literary work. Like it's not mm-hmm. just here, I'm gonna cram some poetry you know, in your, in your maw, you know, when you're not studying for foundations of science, right? But actually, like, here's what modern contemporary poetry looks like. Mm-hmm. What do you like? And why do you like it? And right. can you persuade the room to mm-hmm. like the thing that you've pulled out of the slush pile? Like, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And I definitely think that, um, like, I know uh, you all were talking earlier, like, how can you not trust the students, but um, how, how can you be sure that they know what they're talking about? But I think like the students, especially the ones who don't take a lot of uh, creative writing or English courses, like they try even harder. They might read mm. a poem like six or seven times before they say no. Um, mm. And yeah, I think, but I think that in the end, like everyone enjoys the class and the chance to see what happens with a, mm. a poem. And yeah. all they're doing is bringing it to the table, too. Yeah. You know, they're just, they read a poem, they like it, or they don't, or, you know, they like it. And then, you know, a lot of times you bring a poem to the table and you're the only one of two people who like the poem and mm-hmm. that's it. So it's, mm-hmm. so you still have to win people over and mm-hmm. it has to be a, a poem that sticks in people or a story that sticks. Yeah. And also, I think that, um, I mean, just to kind of segue into a related point, um, reading at a literary journal for creative writing majors, I think is probably one of the most important things they could do to um, improve their own writing and get some insight into um, what's going on in the literary world. I mean, it's, it's so humbling to see everything that comes through a slush pile and it really puts you into some larger perspective or your work rather. Um, It was incredibly impactful for me as 
a young writer to start reading through the Harvard Review slush pile, I don't think I wrote a single word for about five years. Wow. Um, because it was just so overwhelming. But when I did, when I was ready to start writing again, I was such a better writer. Mm-hmm. It was transformational. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we've, mm-hmm. we've had a couple of, um, you know, air quote grownups uh, work with us who said that um, they didn't feel they needed an MFA after working with PBQ and read mm-hmm. and just... You know, when you say working with PBQ, it doesn't really mean only PBQ. You kind of get immersed in that whole literary magazine world, right? We mm-hmm. learn about you and what you're doing and and so many other magazines. So, you know, you've got to swim in it to get it, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it certainly might be considered an alternative to an MFA program, mm. you know, just mm-hmm. just reading, 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 reading and hearing what people have to say about the work. Oh, and <clears throat> I mean, so many uh, great authors have made that point, you know, that if you want to be a writer, you have to read. You just have to read as much as you can voraciously of everything from everywhere. Um, I personally agree strongly with that. Yeah. With that. Absolutely. So was that a cat? That's my cat. <laughs> so I, I should tell you too that I, I'm, so I'm sitting here in Abu Dhabi. I've got a cuckoo clock and an Egyptian mouth. <laughs> and and the cat comes to me. Um, her mother was a stray cat on campus, and my colleagues scooped up the mom, brought her home, and she immediately delivered kittens. And so this this cat is the last of that batch, um, and she's delightful, but she talks a lot. And apparently wow. that's just like what stray cats here in the in Abu Dhabi do. So you're going to hear her talk. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you, and, you just, and you just heard her. She's like, hey, what's up? I love that. I love that. I love a chatty cat. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm assured she's not in distress. She just really likes the sound of her own voice. Um, Does she, is she the type of cat that gets up, um, crawls right up on your book when you're reading it or your laptop while you're reading PBQ submissions? No, but what she, she, I think she has figured out gravity and I'm sure you know what this is like with cats. Like she, she will like come on the, my desk and just start to like very slowly push a pen to the very edge until it falls, right? or lose change or, you know, actually the worst was like a, a, a glass. She just like, you know, pushed oh, over. No. Yeah, she, she wants to make sure the gravity's still working. I think that's what they're gravity. doing. She's like, she's got that down. Like, it's a threshold concept, you know? She's like, hey, I get this. I get this. <laughs> yeah, my pug does that all the time. You know, he's just always uh, nosing things off the edge of desks. <laughs> Cute. What's, your, what's your pug's name? Nigel. That was a joke. He doesn't nose anything off a desk. He's not that smart. I mean, cats are oh, way more. I honestly, I'm so not a dog person. I was like, I had a vision of a pug like pushing no. things off a desk. Like, no, awesome. no. Oh my god, no. Can you imagine a pug like climbing up onto a table and pushing yes. things? I thought that's what Nigel did. I don't know. Oh gosh, no. He's so unaware of everything except for food. You know, if that's not an example of like the miraculousness of communication, honestly, like how either like anybody is able to communicate with each other and not be woefully misunderstood at every turn, I don't know what, right? I, maybe this is why I love coach, like that, that opportunity yeah. to sort of communicating things even as you're, you know, building tricks right into it. So, I don't mm. know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, 
Does anybody have anything to say about where we're headed? I have a question. If Slush Pile sure. submits to like the Pushcart Prize or Best American Short Stories and those oh, types God. of... Oh, God. Slush Pile really should. Slush Pile means yeah, to. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Slush Pile just has yeah. so little time on her hands. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's on my... It's Slush Pile needs a co-op. I, um, I've been meaning to do that. Every, every time I... Yeah. Yes. The answer is yes in the future. <laughs> Put the deadline in your calendar now, as soon as we're done with this. Yeah, that's, that's what yes. I've been doing for for a few years now. Yes. But there's yeah, a, a, gazillion, a gazillion, a gazillion years okay. we missed. But um, put the deadline two weeks ahead in your calendar right now. It's thank I, you. I, I yeah. want to say early December, and then you'll get it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, thank and you. so speaking speaking of getting it done, by the way, like I think our listeners really should make double double sure to go to your website and click through these issues because they are gorgeous and the writing is miraculous. Um, and that one of my questions for you is the design of the website is, is like lush and simple simultaneously. So who designs the website, A, and B, where are you getting this art? Because I'm like, <laughs> you know, the pleasures of like clicking around and seeing these images, like, like for instance, what is this, oh, is it at issue 18? Like the, those images are staggeringly interesting. The way the color is like playing in, in what look like paintings. Although for at one point I thought these were weavings. So the, that's many questions at you, but could you just talk a little bit about the design of the site? Yeah, um, so I designed the, the basic layout using um, Squarespace. Um, the, art that we feature okay wait um my husband actually he does um graphic design and uh, related things so he helped me with some of the typefaces sourcing typefaces and he helped me um refine the the logo of the woman on the ladder um mm -hmm. and then the art um i have a dear friend in boston who is a painter and an artist and is deeply immersed in that world and she helps me find all of our featured artists with a couple of exceptions. Wow. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So that's, that's where they come from. I, uh, I'm, I, um, I mean, I know this is my thing, so obviously I love it, but I also love the art. Um, Daniel Benayoun, the, the last artist we featured, I very nearly, um, dropped several thousand dollars on one of his his paintings yeah. they're really huge i mean i'm going to it's just that um we were planning our wedding and it wasn't the right time to, to make a big big investment in art but yeah i love them too thank you so much for saying that really really just gorgeous and kathy if you get a chance when you're when we're done with this promise me you're going to go to issue 16. okay um and click around the art there just because they're it's delightful and and just glorious <laughs> okay well we'll make sure to link uh link this up on our podcast pages and um and go you know go from there i'm sure our listeners are now going to be turned on for sure Thank turned you. on is exactly exactly the right phrase for that perfect good um i think we do have to begin to wrap up so i'm wondering if there's any parting comments from anybody other than the best of luck to Rachel and thank you for having this I like to know that slush piles out there 
Um, yeah, I have some parting comments. Thank sure. you so much for um, offering me cheap wine instead of uh, getting into a bar fight with me at AWP uh-huh. when I found out that. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> went the right direction thanks for that ladies this has been really fun oh good good anybody else all right well to our listeners all of um content from this will be up on our podcast pages and links to um and rachel rachel brandwin's site and um keep reading thanks for listening is produced through a joint venture of Drexel University's Office of Information Resources and Technology and the Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. This podcast is the property of Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. All rights reserved.